brought to you by Brass and Unity. We make wearable conversation starters. Our new buddy check packs are available now. Grab one and check on one of your closest buddies. They may need it now more than ever. Go to brassandunity.com, use the code UNITY and get 20% off. And let's all heal together. And brought to you by Combat Flip Flops. Bad for running and even worse for fighting. Combat flip-flops are your ticket to the unarmed forces by providing you with military-inspired quality footwear for men and women. To help support the podcast and in support of women in developing countries, head over to combatflipflops.com and become a part of their unarmed forces today. Be sure to use the code UNITY at checkout and get 25% off. And brought to you by GFDA. Good fucking design advice. The voice in your head and the foot up your ass. GFDA makes prints, drinkware, and apparel for people who want to do their fucking best. Go and use the code UNITY and get 10% off now on anything on their site, including our collaborative product, Fucking Help Somebody. And brought to you by Daisy May Hat Co., the custom hat company based in Nashville, Tennessee. They make custom one-of-a-kind hats from wide-brimmed fedoras to cowboy hats. All of their hats are 100% beaver felt, and it's the highest quality hat you can get. They also have the coolest shirts ever. You can use the code BRASS at checkout for 15% off your entire order. Go and check out daisymayhats.com. Embrace the fever. Live the dream. And brought to you by Midday Squares. Have you ever tried a Midday Square? They are the first functional chocolate bar and they're making waves. They're vegan, gluten-free, dairy-free, soy-free, and non-GMO. They have 6 grams of protein, 4 grams of fiber, and omega-3s. Most importantly, they kill hunger, fuel your brain, boost your mood, and all from natural energy. They're everything a chocolate bar isn't and everything a protein bar wishes it was. Use the code Kelsey15 at checkout to get 15% off today. So today is a different episode for me. It's an episode that I'm really grateful to be able to bring forward, but I recently ran into an individual by that goes by the name, the Terrace Whisperer, and my God, is he ever, and it is more than just what those words lay out. There's so much to... Hamity and the way he is a human, who he is as a human being, but what he's been through. And I have to say, after reading your book, I can't say that I've ever read a book as fast as this. It is backed up by some serious hitters and it is so well written, but it makes you want to know more and more and more. And the stories in here are some of the most insane things I've ever heard in my lifetime. And I would like to think by now I've heard some stories. So Hamity, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. And thanks for this awesome book, dude. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me here with you guys. Wow. This is, um, there's a lot to unpack here with you because <clears throat> we we met at a Defenders of Freedom uh, charity event down in Texas, and I got the privilege of meeting you in person and having conversations and, and then getting to read the book over the week uh, while I was on the plane. It was, it, it's, it's unlike anything I've ever read. I don't know. I don't know how you were able to put your whole life down on paper up to this point, yeah. at least till America that you have, but yeah. it, man, you articulate it so well. And I guess the real place I would like to start at is um, you put a dedication in this book to somebody that was really special to you. And I, I love you to kind of take a second to acknowledge who that person is. Yeah. That make Megan McClog, um, Major Megan McClaw was actually the highest ranking female that was uh, the highest ranking Marine officer female that was killed in combat. Um, Megan and I met back in 2004. Uh, she was a great mentor when she was a contractor. And um, unfortunately, Megan made it back with the Marine Corps 
reserve um, to Ramadi back in 2006, and she was killed in December 6th of 2006, just about one week from going home. And that's uh, right at the very beginning of your book. And I, and I love to see, I love to see it because I know how much you truly um, do care about her. You spoke about her several times when we met um, over the weekend and to see that in your book was, was really special. That being said, you, my friend, because I'd like to call you my friend now at this point, have gotten some serious things I want to go over and the life uh, that you've lived. as a mom reading this afterwards, going through parts of it where you were, <clears throat> you were run out of, out of your own home and having to live in a swamp and having to do some of these things. Um, I, I can't, I can't pretend to understand, but I can always tell you, I will always do my best to empathize with you um, in all of these situations. That being said, I would love you to take me through how you became the terrorist whisperer, how you became the infamous guy that was able to go out uh, outside the chain of command, save people, save kids. And you really became an enemy of the Islamic state like I've never seen. Um, I guess you can say that, you know, there's there's a, a small sentence that I've always repeated to my enemies tr- through my time in Iraq whether I was fighting them in battle or whether I was collecting intelligence on them as a, as an intelligent asset for the U S intelligence. Um, I always called myself and told every single terrorist I ever met, I am the product of your creation. And what I meant by that is that, um, I am not that guy that, you know, people look at this book, uh, movie and documentary in Amazon And this former spy that collected an Al-Qaeda Islamic State was only feats from the most dangerous people in the world. But the honest truth is I am just an average person as a normal person that grew up in a very tough environment. And you can say that the environment creates who you really are, the environment that you're surrounded by. And unfortunately, my environment growing up as a child was extremely violent, extremely dangerous. I was at, at war at all time. I mean, I was born in 1986 during the Iran-Iraq war. I opened my eyes during the, the first Gulf War in 1991, and I entered the war officially as a soldier in 2003 when the U.S. troops liberated Iraq. So I've been at war since I was born. I was born to war. And these were my environments. These were the environment that I lived in. And when you live in such environments, unfortunately, it creates somebody out of you that you shouldn't be. Um, I never was a violent person, never wanted to use violence against anybody. I was very peaceful, very friendly to everybody. But unfortunately, the, the environment, it creates somebody out of you that is not. So when I meant by saying that sentence is, I am the creation of your own product. Um, in general, terrorists, whether tyrants, uh, anybody who dealt with over the years, um, unfortunately makes these environments worse for you. And I was able to put this five years of most brutal war in Iraq in 250 pages because I felt, you know, I felt I had to go down to the bottom line. I've seen a lot of people that had lived a day or a, a battle or a deployment of 12 months or six months have written a 400 pages book or have written like 350 pages book. I just didn't 
have much to talk about. I wanted people to know exactly what I was going through and just to the bottom line of what really life was and why uh, people like myself end up in that side of the road, what, why I end up in that side of the world. And, um, you know, you're talking about Iraq was violent from the beginning, um, 2003, prior to 2003, I had events in my life that truly changed the way I was. Um, regardless of the war in 1991, how bad it was uh, for me and how, how a survival it was th this for me, I was still a five-year-old child that didn't understand mm -hmm. really what was going on around him. And I can say things, you know, things were clicking at that point, but imagine you're a five-year-old and you're trying to understand what the hell is happening around you. It was just not processing uh, I can't. I have a six. Yeah. I have a five year old and I have a hard enough time with him being aware of the surroundings he's in. And when I read some of the things that you speak about at that age, when you start talking about because you do one thing I do appreciate about your book, Hamity, is you go back prior to when you were in service and prior mm -hmm. to when you were um, actually working yeah. with the United States and you talk very in depth about your mother and about your siblings and about your dad and being placed under investigation for, and then, yeah. you know, putting in jail and then you going to jail as a 12 year old in one of the most horrific yeah. prisons that has yeah. ever existed. And, uh, and, and that's exactly what I was trying to get into is, is that mm -hmm. everything was not really clicking or processing in my life at that point in Iraq, living under Saddam Hussein as a dictator until I actually went to prison as a 12-year-old child, um, many people would think into why would a 12-year-old child would go to prison? You're talking about a world that is different than yours, that once you're an enemy of the state in such a regime or such a system, you would never be treated as a human being. It doesn't matter how old you are, whether you're a child, whether you're an adult, whether you're an older person, sick or not, healthy, doesn't matter. My problem is, as I left middle school, I had money in my pocket, and it was a norm going on in society that I was not aware of, because I was a person that was pretty much excluded from the rest of the society. I was afraid to talk to anybody, and the norm was to take whatever you have in your pocket and give it to the regime member or the Ba'ath Party member, which is Saddam's political party, or the police officer, whoever representing that power you need just to take whatever you have in your pocket, give it to them and say nothing. And that was the norm. That's what adults did. They followed the rules. They obeyed. And if you don't obey, you know the consequences. For me, I was just 12-year-old. I didn't know what's better. <clears throat> so <clears throat> when I got out of that middle school that day and I got pulled over by uh, a police officer with two guards, when he talked about a bath party member, one of Saddam's regime members. Um, there's something different about them. Um, the way they dress, the way they sound, the way they walk. Uh, I can tell I was approached by three people. I can tell exactly who the regime member was because he dressed differently. He looked differently. And the two other guards did not look anything like him and the tone he used. And he asked me for the money that I have in my pocket. And at the time I had some cash that I put away. I wanted to buy myself a new shoe. And I have kept some of that cash in my wallet. I uh, kept some of it in my socks. I just was not really ready to give my money away. And when he asked if I smoke any cigarettes, it was a common thing that down back then that teenagers smoke cigarettes. If I had cigarettes to give him, I didn't have any. I didn't smoke. So I just ignored him 
and I walked away. And he got offended by that, so he pulled his 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 car right in front of me, got out, searched me, found the wallet, exchanged words, and he ended up slapping me really hard. I went down to the ground, and when I went down to the ground, I got slapped pretty hard. I mean, imagine it's a six-foot-tall person versus a 12-year-old skinny Iraqi child who's been living under sections for the last seven, eight years, and... When he hit me, I, I kind of just lost myself and I cursed him back. And that was a big deal in our culture. I got grabbed and I was taken to, uh, to the police car and the car driven for about 45 minutes. Um, I was walking to go home and I end up in this car driving 45 minutes. And I will never forget one thing that happened in the way. I was scared. Uh, at the end of the day, I felt like maybe they're going to discipline me. Maybe they're going to beat me up. Maybe they're going to just throw me far away and let me walk home. That was the worst I expected going on that day. And until one of the guards who was sitting next to me, he was probably around his 50s at the time. And the the regime member sitting right in the front. And he said to him, he said, hey, he's just a child. Why don't you just, you took his money. Why don't you just kick him in the butt and let him go home? Mm -hmm. He turned around with the tone and he said, if you keep talking, I'm going to throw you. I'm throwing him tonight, which basically I'm going to throw you right with him. And the guy just zipped his mouth, shook his head and said nothing. And we drove about 45 minutes. We got to basically the gate of the Ministry of Interior of the Iraqi government at the time. And usually normal citizens would not see anything beyond that gate. We used to drive by it. We never know what's really behind that gate. And once I passed the two guards that were in the front of that gate, I was actually driving by the Ministry of Interior. This is my first time in my life actually seeing a government building that belonged to the Iraqi government. Um, the, the road was empty. It driven about two, three miles and sat beyond that checkpoint. But we actually passed the Ministry of Interior, which was to the left. And when we passed it, within about half a mile, they took a right. And there was a compound. It was just a, a compound that was with high walls. You couldn't see what's inside. And there's only one red slide gate that opened. And a guard opened the gate and I went inside. And, and the first thing really came through my eyes was uh, uh, cages. It looked like the zoo in a way. It was cages. Um, and there was like concrete building behind the cages. So the, the cages were pretty much like the first line of a prison and then behind it there's concrete bars and uh, metal bars and everything and you couldn't really see where you are and they parked the car and I sat right in the car and they all went out went to a room which is about like 10 meters away from the car and they spent about half an hour and I'm thinking through that this could be a warning this could be a disciplinary action uh this could be whatever you know like I somehow I felt that in my heart, I had a little hope that I would go home. I'm just a child. What what else would they say that I did? I didn't do anything. Is this normal? Kids go uh, missing all the time around this time? Around oh, this time not, with Saddam? Not, oh, not just kid. Anybody go missing. People get missing, never came back. People went missing and they never find a body to this day. Well, that's and, why I bring it up is I don't yeah. mean to interrupt you, but a lot of the listeners yeah, yeah. might not fully understand oh, yeah, wrap this, their brain around the severity I mean, and the normalcy of this. I mean, you're talking about a country that buried people alive. They did not. 
that was just a norm. I just was a, I was just a child that was not aware of the society and what's really normal in society. And I go in to this, to this uh, room, I get taken out of the car, walk in and I was given a pen and the pen with, there was a paper on the table that was filled full report. I have no idea what was written in it. And I'll start to sign. And there were guards out there with with bats in their hands. And I was given the pen and I told Sasan. And I took the pen and I just read the first few sentences on the report. And the first few sentences on the report stated that this was a revolutionary fighter that was trying to assassinate a, a Ba'ath Party member while on duty. And I signed the paper. And when I signed the paper, I immediately got taken to the right side of the prison, got walked into um, a metal right behind the cages where I was looking, got walked into a metal bar. And they opened the door and I got thrown inside. And there was about like maybe 500 people that was inside of that prison. And it was not like an American or modern prison where you have two people in the cell. This was one big warehouse with 500 people on a concrete floor. That's what it was. And there was no beds. There's nothing. People just sitting in the floor. And when I went inside, within half an hour, I was taken to a torture room that was actually copied and taken from an old Roman torture book that the government uh, And the room is actually all painted in red. They hung you upside down. Then they let you. um, They had no windows. And it had a dim light. And they hung you upside down. They supposedly psychologically break you down on whatever confession they were going to give you. You're just going to agree to. And they just basically process you right from there. What this is was actually the transformation prison. Right from that prison, they decide who you really are. And you go face to whatever trial that you're going to go. And you get assigned to the right judge based on your case. So at the time, as a 12-year-old, I had no idea who resistance of that government is. I have no idea who the rivals are. I don't have any idea of what was going on. And I know after getting beaten for about half an hour, I said yes to things. I had no idea what they were. And I got put back to prison. You're and a child, it, man. And, I, and it's just a child. You know, it, it, you really went in and you got to see what really life like in that country. And I got to sit down and one of the prisoners said, do you have any money left in your pocket? I said, you know what? I have, I have like 250 dinars in my, in my um, socks that he did not find. And he said, give him to me. And I just thought he was trying to take my money. So I gave it to him. He waited until about nighttime. It was, it was around nighttime. There was a guard that cleaned the director of the prison office. And at the time, there was no cell phones. There was only landlines. And he asked me, it's what's my family's phone number is. And I remember the phone number. I gave him the phone number. And the guard came in, talked to me with a really like low voice through the bars. And this prisoner handed the money to the guard. And I gave him the money, gave him the number. I said, please give me the name of the person that answers the phone. I just wanted to know if this was real if this was just going to take my money, never do it. So clearly this guard made phone calls for prisoners 
mm-hmm. while cleaning the office using the landline without anybody knowing. And at That's the time, technology at the time and everything, they were really not listening to the phone. And he were doing it for whatever the prisoners can offer. Um, and some of the prisoners made him stuff, handmade stuff, and gave it to him. Some of the prisoners had money. They gave him money. And he came back within about an hour, and he just said, um, I made the call. Someone answered the phone. And this is in the name of the person that answered the phone. And it was actually my brother's name. And I knew that my family, I was kind of relieved that my family at least would know where the hell I went because I just didn't come home from school mm-hmm. that day. And I got sat there for about a few weeks. My family showed up at the prison and started negotiating with the prison director to not process my papers. So the prison director, thankfully, because there was some corruption at that time, the prison director said, well, you have two options. Either his papers get processed as a fighter and enemy of the state, and it goes to a Supreme judge where he get either executed or go to underground prison. Or you can give me enough money and I'll smash the report and he'll just leave through the door. And my family put money together. Um, my whole family, aunts, uncles, everybody put money together. So this was going on in the outside. I had no idea what was going on in the inside. Um, all I know is you were getting tortured every day. Um, every morning, around four o'clock in the morning, some officer will come in with guards and they will make you all stand up and they'll just count you. And they'll count how many people are in the prison. And they just, the same number every single day. Um, the food was actually raw chickpeas with a piece of bread that actually you can hit someone in the head with and you'll just injure them. And the raw chickpeas were actually cooked in warm water. So they call that a soup, but it's not. You really, the only way for you to eat is to take those chickpeas and just chew them. And that's your way of surviving. And until about, I got cold out and I went out that prison. And this time they did not take me through the left side where they usually take me. They took me through the other side and, and, when they took me through the other side, I had no idea what was going on on the outside or what negotiations was going on. And I, I just really, you know, I felt like maybe this is it. Maybe they're just going to shoot me to the bag and I'm done. This is it. And I got walking to the opposite side. And as I walked outside, um, the one of the guards said to me, put your head down. Uh, don't look up. And I went out to where actually where I was um, brought in first, where where I was in the car. And when I went to sign all that papers, I was brought to that area for the first time in weeks. And I was right in the middle of of that area and behind me, the guard. And I'm just waiting to see what really is going on behind me. I'm down. He removed the things from my um, from my head. And he went down to my arm and he opened my handcuffs. And I still remember he got close to my head from my back. And he just said, go straight, walk and do not turn around. And that was his instruction. And as I really walked, 
the same slide gate open and I saw my dad for the first time. And when that gate opened and I saw my dad, I just went silent. I wasn't really sure what was going to happen next. And just right between where I was to the gate, maybe about eight meters away. And these, these were probably the most difficult eight meters I have walked in my life because I'm not sure what's coming from the back. And as soon as I made it out of that gate, the gate closed. Like I never seen this place before. And I didn't say anything to my dad. I was quiet and silent. And my dad noticed all the abuse in my back, um, the torture. And my family was mad at me because I didn't give my money away. And got taken back to the house, went to a doctor to get treated uh, for all the damage in my back. And I really went, I went to a, a different life. I went to basically from an A student at school to a, a C student or maybe an F student. I was failing everything. I did not have any interest in going to school. I was going to school just because I have to. I walked by a wall pretty much and I could not get in trouble for any reason. Any reason, any time if I get in trouble, I'm done. And I avoided people. Um, bullies did whatever they did. I couldn't defend myself. And I just literally stayed to myself, stayed at home, um, lived that depressing life until about uh, I opened my door in 2003 and there was an American soldier standing there. And that was the first change of my life is mm. opening that door seen an American soldier standing there. And then from there, life really went differently for me. Um, I guess opening that door was just a first step towards changing my life. And we never forget the conversation between me and that soldier. And, and, and I asked him a question if they were going to leave this time because the U.S. troops entered Iraq in 1991, end up leaving and people end up getting buried alive for not fighting the Americans. And that was the mass killings you're speaking yeah. of with yeah. the chemical owl and I mean, all of that. I want to I want to go this, into that a little. To this day, yeah, Iraq is still finding gravesites of people from that day. So for me, it was was it worth it to talk to this American soldier? And when I said, I said, "Are you guys leaving this time, or are you staying?" And he said, "Oh, we're staying." And I opened the rest of the door, and I went and brought cigarettes to the guy. And I started talking to him and truly once I made it out and saw like an American Bradley vehicle and a soldier standing right there. And I just saw that vision and I couldn't see any of these bath party members, regime member. I couldn't see anybody. It was just a different world. I almost closed the door and opened the door to a, a whole new world. And within weeks, they established the new Iraqi military. Um, they let go of the old Iraqi military. They established new government, new Iraqi military. And at the time, the, the U.S. PSYOP, there was no access to TV. They, they did a little ad in the radio and said, if you are a police officer, come back, try to come back to service your people. If you want to join the new Iraqi military, this is where you go sign up. And I was 17 years old. I ran into the 
to the first uh, recruiting center in Baghdad. And I walked in there and there was American soldiers there and there was about four people on the line. And I was number five. And there was a reason why there's four people on the line because the military was actually mandatory during Saddam Hussein time. Nobody wanted to be in the military at that point. People had enough wars. People have been at war since 1980. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants to be in the military. There's four people and I was the fifth. And these were probably the most hopeless five people in Iraq. And I came into the gate and the person in front of me um, made it into the MEP station to get like medically checked and get processed. And they looked at my ID and they said, oh, too bad. You're, you're 17 years old. We're taking 18 year old and above. And I didn't know what to do. I actually went back home and there was a guy in my neighborhood that faked the IDs because it's written by hand. Mm-hmm. It's not a professional digital ID. He updated my age to one year and I went back the same day. And the guy actually got me. It was the same exact guy. <laughs> and he just said, he said, I thought you were 17 earlier this morning. Yeah, you misread. And I really looked at like, yeah, I was like, I, and he looked at me and he's like, how did you do this? I said, I just changed it. And he said, you know what? Go get one of your parents to sign this and I'll get you in. Right. And I went and got my mom. My mom came in and signed it right in front of him. And he let me in. And when can I we went, talk? Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Can ahead. we talk about, no, no, it's okay. Can we talk about your mom there for a little bit, just for a second? Because yep. you do touch on um, your family here in a yeah. way. And I think it's really special. And I want to acknowledge her because again, there's a lot of things that when I was in Afghanistan would not have resonated or hit me, but then now being a mother, now reading this book back, yeah, at, you know, watching um, her children go through this, you talk, you, yeah. you kind of skimmed over that. And I have a feeling I know yeah. why um, it's got to yeah. be too, too painful, but I do have to touch on it a little because I want the listeners to understand yeah. what Iraq was like a little previous to the United States coming in. Um, you're, you're, you, 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 you brushed over very, very quickly over the mass killings with Saddam and, and that those couple days that they went and murdered uh, innocent civilians, like left, like it was going out of style. Um, I've never, I've never read anything like this where I, I felt physical pain reading this portion of the book. Um, when you speak of your mom and three siblings having to go up to your grandfather's farm um, to escape the the killings and everything that was happening. And I guess what I, the reason I bring it up is because the strength of your mom and the strength of this woman to be able to go and take her children and run the way that you all did. Yeah. How is, how how is your mom? How was your mom? How is your mom? What is? Did your mom ever show signs? Was your mom always strong to you? Do you get what um, I'm saying? I want to know about. Yeah, her. I, I mean, I mean, um, at the time they they do know what you've been through, and uh, prior to that, before I actually left to go to this recruiting center, my mom and dad had a conversation with me, and my dad looked at me and said a very simple thing to me. He said, "You know." You're going to die. And that was actually prior to me going to the recruiting center. And I looked at it and I said, you know what? I totally understand it. I am not living here anymore. 
I do not fit in this society. And I am not going to wait for someone to come control my life again. I am fully aware when I'm signing up. And my dad just looked at me. He was like, you're going to die. Um, if you're going to do this, you're going to die. And I said, um, you know, it's my choice. I want to do it. And I'm fully aware of what the consequences is. Nobody knew in 2003 where the country was going. Saddam uh, allies were just coming back strong at that point. Uh, you can tell a war was just about to break out, a violent war. And I'm barely just trying to make it in before something happened. And, and I'm going to tell you something that's going to actually show that I made it in just in time. And if I was just about a day late, what could have happened to me? And I went in and uh, my family was actually not agreeing that I'm making this step, but I insisted 110 that I am going to do this mm -hmm. and I'm going to join the Iraqi military. And there was reasons for me, you know, th this is a big deal for me at the time because first time in my life, I'm able to carry a gun and have an equal fight against the enemy that scared me the, my whole life. And this time, the table have turned around, and I am the law, and they're the fugitive. You have to understand, this was big deal for me. And I went in. My family totally were in a belief that I'm already a casualty going in to do this. And I immediately got shipped. They gave me a day. And they said, you're getting shipped on this day. You'll be escorted by a convoy all the way down to the training base to the northern side of Iraq. You'll be trained by a U.S. company called MPRI. It's retired Vietnam veterans, mostly Marines. And you're going there. I came in. I got shipped in 2003. And they made about three shipments. They said, this day, one shipment goes in. The next day, another shipment goes in. And then another one. I made it in the first shipment. And we were supposed to, I got into the base, met all our, you know, instructors who were in charge. And at the time, we were all American instructors. And the second shipment got hit by a car bomb. And people didn't make it. People actually died at MEPS and got blown up. And we were waiting at the base for buses to show up with a convoy so we can show them because we were there a day prior where their bed's going to be at the company. And they told us nobody made it. There may be about 12 people that decided to show up and come still do this. Others have ran away, just left. And we started our training. And we went into... Training for three months, and this is how they were establishing the first Iraqi division. And the MPRI um, instructors trained that first battalion, put us all together, mixed us up in each platoon, each squad. There were people from every side of Iraq in every. I mean, this is the first time in history of that country for you to be on a squad with people that have different religious background than yours people that spoke a different language than yours. We were not just Arabs. We were Arabs, Kurds, Yazidis, and Shebek. And each and every one of us comes from a different civilization, speaks a different language. And some of us don't even speak the same language. Which we is crazy. 
Yeah. Which is crazy because you're one country and something you touch yeah. on in the book here. That was really, I think this is yeah. what gave you such a huge leg up was your parents, your dad spoke English, your family spoke English enough. They never spoke it outside of the home because you would be put in prison, but yeah. you could speak English. Your mother did not speak English yeah. from what I gather. Yep. So it gave you a leg up. And for people that aren't understanding the way that Iraq is split there are different vi- not villages, but yeah. there's the Sunnis, there's the Shiites, there's yeah. there's a ton of different individuals, and then they're all cumulating into one area. And whether or not you all get along or not, you're yeah. all there for the greater good now. Yeah, and it is. And you know what's so interesting is I didn't even know these people existed in my country. Isn't that nuts? It is. I didn't even know. I'm like when honestly, when I got in. When there was a lot of Kurds with me, like I know of Kurds were around. I have never heard of Yazidis or Shevak. Yazidis are actually ancient religion that been in the area in the northern side of Iraq. And they're not Muslim at all. And really, they are older than Islam. They're an ancient religion. And I had no idea what these people were, what they believe on. And huh. I just kept looking left and right to the platoon. And I'm looking, I'm like, holy crap. <laughs> a Yazidi who was next to me who doesn't speak Arabic. There is a Kurdish guy who actually doesn't speak Arabic either. There's another Kurdish guy who speaks broken ass Arabic. <laughs> and I was like, we're, we're about to go to war altogether. And it, just, yes. and it really just, I was like, at this point, there's really no point of giving us radios. Um, <laughs> and, and it really, we trained hard, we melted together. And, and obviously, we were wondering why the MPRI coaches who trained, I mean, MPRI, one of the best training companies in the world, no joke. They trained this division. This division has not lost the battle since they trained this division. Best division, division they ever trained, the first Iraqi division. And we just couldn't understand why the Kurds couldn't be all together in one platoon. Each company in each platoon, each squad was mixed of different things. And you could imagine the comedy going on every time we try to go through a gun or try to yeah. take part. <laughs> and you hear all three, four different languages going around. And we're just like, yeah, we're eventually all going to die because we can't communicate. And somehow we were training together. Um, and this MPRI coaches have figured out the problem with these soldiers. They found that most of us showed up skinny. Because we actually were living under sanctions for so many years. Mm-hmm. For a lot of years, we we're living under sanctions. We couldn't eat meat for years. We were pretty much eating nothing but carbs every day, bread and, and rice. And a lot of us were just really skinny. Um, the MPRI coaches started making these Iraqis do PT twice a day, early in the morning, later after you do your training, after you do all your range and everything all your military training. This is, I can guarantee you, this is the first time in Iraq, Iraqis get to do PT twice a day. Never. This was extremely difficult to take someone who's coming out of sanctions, who's hungry, does not eat enough. And what they did, they went in and they contracted with a five-star Iraqi restaurant, which is like the equivalent of Cheesecake Factory. (laughs) Like seriously. That's amazing though. And they put a DFAC in each company, and they said, we need this amount of protein served mm-hmm. every single day to these soldiers. And when we went in the first time, and I think the first time we get to really smell 
um, you know, the, the smell of meat, like the smell of steak. And we look at all these massive plates with kebabs and food and everything in it that we could never afford to eat. And we walked in and they walked us into the line and they said, all right, this is what you're going to get. You're going to take your plate. You're going to get that much food. If you're hungry and this is not enough for you, go back to the line, get more. How because is that? In Iraq, Iraqi military back in there, they starved their ass to death. The old Iraqi military. They never got enough food. They never get, got food either. Some of them just really barely made it. I mean, you're talking, this was a very shocking behavior for us. And I can tell you, uh, when we walked in and there was all this food that majority of us, all of us literally could not afford to eat before. And you did not hear anybody speak. Everybody was just eating. Uh, I mean, you're talking about people who are tasting the taste of meat probably for the first time or the first time in 12 years. And people were eating. We started training. Uh, they, we started getting fed well. Uh, so the calories we were burning, we're actually making it out in the DFAC. And we started training hard and hard and hard. And, you know, you just think about it while in training that Iraq just went to shit while you're inside of that base. The mm -hmm. war just broke out in every single inch in the country. And you're training and you're thinking within two more months. After these three months is over. That front gate at the at the base is going to open and you're coming out of it as a soldier and you're going to fight the whole entire country. And there's just about enough of us versus the whole country. And we trained every single day, range every other day, ate well, prepared. And when that training was over, um, everybody went to specialty training after that for about another month or so. And the gate opened and here goes the first Fallujah battle in 2004. And we went straight right from the northern side of Iraq to the Ambar province. The convoy left, made it through Baghdad because you got to go from north to Baghdad, from Baghdad towards the west of the Ambar province for Fallujah, Ramadi, and all these areas. The actual convoy got engaged in Baghdad against the Meda militia. Went and through a firefight. And this was the first time that Iraqis got to see a real infantry unit because prior to that, they were fighting the Iraqi police and they were fighting the ICDC, which is the Iraqi Civil Defense Corps. Not a bad force at all. Great guys, but they were local. Most of them were covering their faces. Most of them were just locally trained, pretty much like police. And they were pretty much used to beating these people up every single day. And they saw this convoy coming through Shella, Baghdad. And they thought it was just another ICDC convoy that we're going to just fuck the shit out of. And with their, their first RPG flying in, all this division just, boom, deployed out of these trucks. Everyone knew how to move. Everybody knows how to move. These were people who were training every single day, eating kebabs and steak every <laughs> single day, shooting at the range every other day. Yeah, let's go. And then literally when they went out, and I still remember the shock in their face, like, oh, what, what the hell is this? 
because our cabblers were covered differently. We had all the green nets all above our cabblers. And truly, when you first got out and the fight started, they realized we were into them. We were moving towards them. We were not just getting hit and pulling our pickup truck and running away. There was no getting out of the kill zone. There was us going to them. And we truly, I'll tell you, so it was a full store line. It's just nothing but stores and buildings. And truly that division like just destroyed the shit out the, of the infrastructure of that road. Fallujah. They yeah, actually cause... pulled out. This, this was actually still in Shola. We, this is on our way to Fallujah. So it's because have... you haven't made it to Fallujah yet. No, no, we were, we were about three hours and a half outside <laughs> from Fallujah. We're and, on uh, our way. But, and literally destroyed the shit out of them. And then they, we kind of like destroyed the shit out of the Madden militia. And, and, and they they were not really trained nor as good as the terrorists in Fallujah were or Al-Qaeda. So they realized they were out against people that are different. And mm -hmm. they started retrieving. They went back and we literally just got there and they were like, you know what? There are actually not the ones we're coming after. We're going to Fallujah. So leave them alone, get on the truck and move. And we got into the truck and there was actually details of prior to that, that I didn't mention that you're talking about Iraqi soldiers. who's never been paid, never ate the same, never ate a decent meal before they started eating a decent meal. And in our way to Fallujah, the Iraqi government informed us that our salaries went from 150,000 dinar, which is probably about $100, to about a million Iraqi dinar, which is about $800. Boom. Now we're making money. I mean, you're talking about some of us have never seen a $10,000 bill, like a 10, I'm sorry, 10,000 Iraqi dinar bill. Right. And all of a sudden you have all that much money. And we're moving to Fallujah and the, the, the battle started. And within the first a few days, they said, we're pulling a brigade back and you guys are going to Baghdad. So we were kind of like, okay, so this is no longer an infantry fight going door to door in the first Fallujah battle. And you were fighting against the whole entire population of the Ambar province, against Fallujah, Ramadi, Garma, every single person in that area was fighting you including the kids, every single person was fighting. They all had we, guns, they're all well-trained. And can, we, can you talk a little bit about Fallujah um, the first time? Because I, I don't have the knowledge of how bad that operation was, but I do know um, a very good friend of mine. Sorry, I dropped my pen here. Yeah. A very good friend of mine um, who's no longer with us anymore was in the first battle of Fallujah. And Fallujah wow. is, was... Uh, aggressive and violent and there was a ton of loss I don't know if you can maybe explain why Fallujah in particular was so difficult Be the the landscape the the people the I mean, you're, you're talking about I mean in, in a simple explanation about what the Ambar province is these people spend their whole life in a hardcore life they were not actually people say oh they may maybe they were pro Saddam or Actually, they tried. They were the only tribe in Iraq that tried to assassinate Saddam Hussein. Oh. Yeah, they are no joke. They are the biggest troublemakers you'll ever meet. This was the hood in Iraq. Mm. These people were very religious, very devoted. 
perhaps they call Fallujah the city of mosques because it has more mosques than anybody else in the country. People were extremely devoted. Most of them were fighting in the Republican Guards during their Iran-Iraq war in the 80s. Um, these people will fight each other if they're not fighting anybody. And all of a sudden, they hear there's an army out of their at their borders. So before they dropped us and the Marine Corps in, they had a U.S. Army units who were in control of that area, and they were handing their ass to them. So they, they decided to the army. Pull the army, drop the Marines, and send the 1st Iraqi Division and anybody you got to this area. And we went in, and uh, prior to that, there was an incident that happened, is when they got four American contractors, killed them, and they hanged them off the bridge. I mean, you're talking about these are the most violent individuals, barbaric, you will ever meet in your life. They captured these four Americans, burned the shit out of them, and hang them upside down from the bridge. And the whole city went to fight you, including the police, including whoever, even if it was working for the government or not. They just decided nobody is going to walk their town. And we went in, and this is who the people of Fallujah before. I mean, Saddam, uh, they tried to actually fight Saddam at one point. And it was actually a, a pilot who was from that area, from the Ambar province. His name is Madloum, I believe, Mohammed Madloum or something like that. He was a pilot, and during one of the parades, he loaded his jet with life ammunition. He was going to kill Saddam. And oh. Saddam executed him, cut his thumb, and sent it over in an envelope to his tribe. And they rose up trying to fight Saddam. And Saddam said, hey, if you don't back up, I'm going to use chemical weapons. And that's, they and did use chemical they, weapons. And uh, they got, you know, they, they got scared because chemical weapons were no joke. And he just said, you know, I'll just kill the, all of you. And they backed up. So you're talking about these are people that are extremely violent, devoted. They just don't give a fuck, truly. Yeah. And they want to fight us aggressively. And the fight started, and then all of a sudden they said, hey, we're pulling one brigade back to Baghdad. And this is a really important mission. And we just thought, hey, thank God we're out of this freaking shit mm -hmm. show. You're talking about Marines and infantry units are moving door to door, every city, through the road, yeah. city by city. We get pulled over to Baghdad, and we get sent to Baghdad. And we get to the Mafana Airfield Base in the middle of Baghdad, right in Midtown. And where they brought me is actually the same exact recruiting center where the, I got recruited. It was <laughs> right behind it. And we were facing Haifa Street, which if people who don't know what Haifa Street is, there were movies done about Haifa Street. Mm -hmm. uh, Haifa Street was called the Purple Heart, Purple Heart Valley, uh, meaning a lot of people get purple hearts or bronze stars being in Haifa Street if you serve in there. and. Haifa Street was actually the most dangerous two miles on Iraq. So you were, you were fighting in Fallujah. You mm -hmm. saw the style of Al-Qaeda, of former Republican Guard soldiers fighting. In Haifa Street, this was a different level. It was a different, a whole different ball game. Reason why is because they had about thousands of Syrian refugees who were members of the Ba'ath Party, who were like Saddam-protected people. And this is where most the residency of the Saddam special guards back in the day where they lived. 
They were fully armed, protected by really giant apartment buildings made out of concrete. It was built by a Polish company back in the 80s. Wealthy area. It's a very good area. And yeah. it, it backs up to a very old town in Baghdad that has tunnels in it. There's mm. a basement in every single house and it connects. Mm. And they call it oh, they called it old Baghdad. Okay. And anybody, the first cab was actually deployed in 2004 there. And when we got there, we got to the unit. And I still remember seeing like left and left and right to the walls. All I see is like hall, bullet halls, bigger halls, which is like RPG halls in the wall. Mm-hmm. And we sat and we said, hey, what is our duty here? And they said, your job is to protect the recruiting center at all costs. They said. Every single day, there will be a line of people trying to join the Iraqi military. The focus have been on to making sure no Iraqi soldiers, no Iraqi military gets recruited out of the recruiting center. So when we got in, the ICDC and the people who are protecting that area told us, we told them, hey, what was it like patrolling Haifa Street? It's just about two miles away. What is it like when I get out of this base? going to them and they said this is what the guy said to me the guard who was there which i can see through his face he was beat up scared morality wise he was not there and he said this to me and he said you don't have to worry about going to them they'll come to you and i said what do you mean he said they'll come here to the gate so what they were doing every single morning as you line up a new recruits to fill application to the racket military they will send either a car bomb or a suicide bomber. That was the attack every single morning between 7 o'clock to 7.30 a.m. This is what you're getting. At night, around 7.30 at night and at 8 o'clock, the barracks of the soldiers were right behind the recruiting center. They send individuals to attack the gate, trying to break into the gate. So you, they don't let you sleep, and they don't let you do your job in the morning. And they're on top of you. So actually that night, before even seeing what Hyper Street looked like, the gate got attacked. And this was not like uh, a distance fight. This was a very close fight. You're at the gate and people show up with PKCs and with you can hear the sound of the tape of the PKC kind of dragging around when they come in. And they opened fire. We had towers that can barely hold. And we literally just defended the gate. And we had a, a Bradley, American Bradley uh, vehicle with about nine soldiers, nine American soldiers with us. And the U.S. base was about three miles down. So these guys, these American soldiers were actually behind us to make sure if we fall down that these terrorists are not going to try to go towards the base. Had at this point, had you ever been to Hayfer Street at this at this time? No, like had, I, as a kid? I have, no, I no, I have never seen that area. I had no idea what it looked like. And all I remember is that the gate is every time a patrol comes back from Hayfer Street, I see people shot in the back, people yeah. bleeding, gunners that are not out there anymore. And you're just looking, you know, you have that feeling in your heart. You're, you're afraid. You're scared. You just know. And then um, I, I still remember that one day 
the a car bomb blew up and it was a one of these cement trucks that had i don't know how many hundred of pounds of c4 they have melted the c4s into all these gas gas little things and they have lined all the c4 wired it all and through the back of that cement truck and they have chained the driver and right front of that road is a very busy traffic and there was a line of people trying to come in to fill applications. I was actually off shift in the, in my room, and I was sleeping on a second uh, on a double bed on the on the top. And when that car bomb blew up, I felt it was an uh, atomic bomb that went off. It was like a nuclear bomb. I felt the wall right next to me almost fell on me, and I automatically with that force got thrown from the top of the bed to the ground. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was just meters. That's where I slept from the gate. And at the time I was looking, I'm like, what did they hit us? What was that? A rocket? What? Like, did a rocket fall behind my room? I had no idea what really just blown up. But when I got out, all I see is just a dark cloud going up. And this was the strongest car bomb. We have been blown up by car bombs before, but this was just insane and i when i first when i went out i put my gear and I just ran out and i will never forget that we had a female soldier who who was job to search any females mm -hmm. coming in through the gate and she was pretty much the furthest from my other guys on the outside behind the wall and when i saw her laying in the ground um she didn't have her feet. Both of her legs were gone. And I went out further. And there was a, hundreds of people dead. Um, you saw people in the ground. You couldn't distinguish who is who. At that point, I couldn't tell who was the civilian and who was my soldiers at the front gate. People clothes were not on them anymore. People were pretty much in different shape. And I one thing that, that gets me from that day was the smell. The smell of mm -hmm. dead, burnt, dead human is just the worst thing you could ever experience your whole life. Mm -hmm. Truly. Worst yep. thing. And you went out. And there was few survivors that are out there. You're trying to save them. And imagine in your head, Someone who has his legs almost chopped up and it's only holding by the tissues, not by the bones. And been shot everywhere in the body and been burnt. The skin is burnt. And you're trying to carry that person and put him on a truck to see if you can save him. Um, the, the decision making at that point was just hard, man. You putting your hands on someone who was burnt or screaming. And uh, it, it was really just a tough time to, to make a decision what you want to do. Um, mm -hmm. Inside of me, I almost wanted to run away. Like, I just want to run away from it. I didn't want to look at that. And, it's a normal reaction, though. And it, and, it, and, it, and it just really like you felt like, I just don't know what to do. Do I Am I going to really touch this person? Am I, am I? And you try to carry the person at the same time and trying to see that person leg or arm it's not in the right shape it's just coming around the wrong direction and um started putting people on the truck 
And that was the worst day I've ever seen the recruiting center get attacked. And that discouraged people from joining the Iraqi military. I'm telling you that day, there was not any car bomb. This was a freaking massive, massive car bomb that changed the whole equation. And uh, after that day, I went and power washed my body armor, uh, my, my uniform. I had to throw it away. Mm-hmm. Um, my equipment, magazines, everything I had on me had a grease of a human being um, mm-hmm. in it. And I, I still remember this is the worst thing I have ever experienced in my life. And um, couldn't get rid of that smell. I couldn't eat. Uh, I couldn't just really, I just sat in there. And one day my, my commander calls me to the office and says, um, they, there was a 25 dead bodies piled right on top of each other in the end of high history. So what they did in high history, they were led by a terrorist called Sayed Hitcham, who was pretty famous. He was a former colonel in the, in the Iraqi Republican guard who led all these terrorists in high history. And taught them how to fight. And he specialized in ambushes. Uh, he has killed so many first calf soldiers who were fighting there. And what they decided to do is that it was not scary enough to kill the new recruits. What they planned to do is to capture an Iraqi soldier in uniform. Mm-hmm. And behead him on national TV. And that would just scare the rest of the country. And what they did is they kidnapped the new recruits who are coming in. Uh, and they made a deal with one of the drivers, public transportation drivers, to instead drive this red zone area through High Street. And they picked all these people who filled an application off the truck, off the bus, and took them out, shot them and killed them. And they lied to the body, lined the bodies right on top of one another, right by the Tigers River, which is located right in the right side towards the end of High Street. And they literally put it right on the beach area where the sand in the river is. And our commander said, go down to the high fish street, take pickup truck, go with the batoon, go down, me and a 24-year-old lieutenant, go down and pick up the dead bodies and uh, put them in the truck and, and go through the other side of high fish street. Do not come back through where you where you entered. And just take them, drop them to the morgue at the hospital where their families can pick them up. It sounds like an easy mission, right? <laughs> and uh, me and a 24-year-old lieutenant at the time got on our trucks and we drove with about 29 soldiers uh, approximately. And went in and we got to a place called Al-Kalani Square. A lot of American soldiers know what that is. That's actually where the Purple Heart valley starts and we went through the square and then we entered high fish street and that day we could not we could you could hear a pin drop like if you drop a pin you can hear it It was quiet it's never good and he just looked in and we're like where's the trucks where's the traffic mm-hmm. uh, i don't know so it looked like someone was blocking traffic a few miles away because you don't see any cars coming so we drove and it was quiet we went through all the way down towards the end of Hyper Street. No one shot at us. You can see bullet holes on the buildings because they usually, when they let a convoy in, they shoot you from both sides mm-hmm. and they crush you. But no one, there was nobody there. And we went in and we just kept it that way. We went down 
and the bodies were put actually on a lower ground. So you had you couldn't go down with your cars. You actually had to park the the, the trucks and you go down on a sand hill going down and you're faced with high buildings. So when you look at it, it's actually a hole. You're going down to the river and you're putting yourself in a low ground hole in order to carry the bodies. So we kept gunners right on the top with the trucks and we went down trying to see how we can carry them. And within about a second, um, the first RPG flew into the truck. We were actually down by the bodies. There was about 150 fighters right behind the walls. And the point was to get you to go to the low ground and then never let you leave. So at that point, we lost 3% of the platoon. Anybody that was in the truck, if it was a driver or a gunner, was was gunned down by RPGs and PKCs. With was Ameri- assistance. And were Americans with you on this no. one? No, Americans, we did not have any Americans. It was completely Iraqis. Yeah. And the first CAV, this was actually their area of responsibility. They're more aware of these areas than we are. Right. And we started separated into two different groups under the bridge columns, which is what holding the bridge. My lieutenant from went to the other side. I went to the other side. And the firefight started. Um. About 60% of my soldiers who got killed during that one hour and 45 minute that day was killed by a sniper who had about maybe five inch hole on a higher ground and we were right under him. And 60% of my soldiers were actually killed by him. And we were shooting at a hole that maybe about the size of your hands two times. And that's the hole we were shooting at from about 500 meters. And every any person that did not get, take cover properly behind the bridge column did not make it. And there was a little stairs that goes up to the top bridge. And these little stairs, we were trying to set, take a high ground because now we're on low ground. We can't go back up anymore because our trucks are all got hit. And we send the three soldiers try to make it to actually go above the bridge so they can actually take a higher ground. And the three soldiers got gunned down right on the stairs. The sniper shot all three of them, and they were laying down in three different parts of the stairs. And at that point, we realized we were in front of a sniper who was actually waiting. We didn't know how many snipers were out there. There were PKCs shooting from three different directions and there were rpgs hitting the bridge column trying to get you to get out of that bridge column because the bridge what's holding the bridge is very thick concrete Mm -hmm. so they try to hit it with rpgs hoping to disturb us and get us to move out and truly all the soldiers who try to move from one place to another did not make it so we stayed down i was after that i was shot with a grenade shrapnel to the right side of my 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 eye, and I had a grenade shrapnel to the left side of my knee. And the first calf have uh, the, before the first calf made it. Usually, an Iraqi QRF unit will d- dispatch from the base to come make it to you. And in the middle of that firefight, 
I heard the the QRF actually screaming on the radio. And the, the last thing I heard from the Iraqi QRF who was coming to me, it was a, a young Iraqi captain who was leading them. Um, he said, I have over like 16, 17 guys have been shot. And I have three bullets in my back. I've been shot three times to the back. And what they have done is they have set up another ambush for the, knowing that a QRF would make it in trying to get us out. They shot that a QRF from both sides of the road, knowing exactly where the QRF is going to come from. And the QRF ended up pulling out. So we were fighting, hoping a QRF would make it. At this point, the QRF was banged up more than we were mm-hmm. and end up to re- retrieving. So the first calf have noticed the QRF have already been destroyed. These guys are pinned down and they had a lieutenant colonel of the time. If I remember his name, I would believe Lieutenant Colonel Sean McDowell of the first calf have saw what was going on, saw the pin down that was going really, really bad. And decided to send actually a Bradley platoon of four Bradleys led by a young um, lieutenant named Jeff Morris, who actually also wrote a book called Legion Rising and also um, talks about the ambush from the outside. And Jeff has been fighting in Haifa Street for a while. It's his area of responsibility. And he came in where actually the Iraqi QRF got banged up. and pretended to enter Haifa Street, engaged that force, and then he pulled back up and returned to and and crossed the, the bridge from the other side of Baghdad and came from the back of us. So he actually went in, made them feel he was trying to get in, and then he pulled out. Went around. Went around and left two Bradleys engaging them. And there's actually a video of the whole firefight. They 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 moved in. They fought. They came back in and out, in and out, while the two other Bradleys went from the back, and he came from our back. And when he actually got on the top of the bridge, that's when I heard the twenty five uh, cannon that was shooting on the sniper positions. There's actually a picture of the sniper positions being damaged by um, his guys. And when he got into the intersection after he got down the bridge. We were right under the bridge. At that point, there was about only eight of my soldiers still alive. And I'm shot. Most of us were been shot. And we didn't know how bad of the damage. We have lost contact with our lieutenant. And when Jeff actually said that when he, when the Bradley doors landed down and he was about to get out, um, this was the most horrific thing he ever saw in his life. Um, there was a body um, tied up to the traffic light in uniform, and uh, the body had no head. The person was actually beheaded. I couldn't tell who that person was until I got up, and I was shot to the right eye. Couldn't see it of blood, and my it, it was like an open lip in my eyebrows, and. I can only see with my left eye and I've been using that to shoot and I could barely really see. And what it looked like, that was actually the body of my uh, young Lieutenant. He was captured alive and beheaded. Um, And when he opened his Bradley, that was the first thing he saw. And then he came, they came down, they got us all out. We were all injured and evacuated us out. 
And uh, when I got up, I realized that was the body of my uh, young lieutenant that I came with that day. And we got on the truck and we left. And I went back to my unit. I got passed up, went back to the unit. And at that time, half of that Iraqi unit started quitting their job. People started leaving, taking their civilian clothes, taking off their uniform and walking out. And I just sat on the room. And I'm just thinking my head is like, where do I go from here? If I go back home, I'm going back to the life of a slave. I'm going to live a shitty life and someone is going to probably come slap the shit out of me and put me in prison or do things to me. Mm -hmm. Or I stay here and do what I have to do. And I just stayed and sat in there. And the next day, the Iraqi Minister of Defense have called us to the Ministry of Defense. And Battlefield promoted all of us. I went from a staff sergeant to a command sergeant major in the Iraqi military. Straight. You were the youngest one to hold that position, if I'm not mistaken. Youngest one in history. My yeah. sergeant major that day walked out of the unit, left. Yeah. And I got promoted and I got went back right exactly to the same unit. Same place. And Somehow you were supposed to motivate soldiers who are looking at death from every single angle to tell them to keep their job. I mean, even myself, I wasn't motivated that time. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember my conversation with my soldiers and I said, you know, what? I don't think this fight is no longer about us. I believe that this fight is really not about us anymore. This fight is about the next generation. It's either we're going to force the law. And put these guys behind bar. Either we're going to just tuck our tails and run away and go home and not do anything. And we stayed and we started building the platoon, started processing more people to join the Iraqi military to build the second Iraqi division. Um, civilian casualties were insane. Um, every time a car bomb, there's traffic outside, goes behind the gate, people die. Um, I mean, I've evacuated families altogether dead in one vehicle um i have evacuated kids older people um and at that point i think my feeling went numb my feeling just went to i, I didn't care I, I didn't think in in a hopeful way anymore i didn't think that 2005 was going to be a better year than 2004 not anymore it changed i used to think that way hey you have you checked in with yourself today how are you doing how are you feeling? Have you had enough water? This is your midday check-in, brought to you by Midday Squares. Big breath in. <sighs> I'm back at it. That the next year may be better. No, not really. I just felt like if I can make it to June or August, that'll be great. That was my you're, goal. You're a kid, man. You're a yeah, kid that was fighting. You were it, fighting against people who, fuck, it's hard to have that conversation. I it's and, weird to have that conversation with an Iraqi, if yeah. I'm honest, because yeah. I had this conversation with a lot of people about yeah. the, what the what what people are willing to do in, in war zones like that and the yeah. life they're willing to take and, and the women and kids are willing to use as bait and just destruction. There is no there is no care for human life. And I don't understand it. I don't understand the the devotion. Yeah, I, I don't get it. I mean, you're just hopeless. You could say that. 
you're hopeless. You didn't, you don't know what to do. And sure. for me, it was like, do whatever it takes just to, to survive. And truly just goes to show you when a human being get, get hopeless, you stop thinking like, Oh, maybe I can make it to the next month. Maybe I'll live a month. Right. Out of what are the chances of you living? You know, every single day at seven o'clock, the enemy is going to attack your gate. Mm -hmm. What are the chances you're going to make it? I mean, the chances at that point were very low. We had to leave two soldiers towards the very front of that gate where you know these are the first two casualties with a suicide bomber or a car bomb. Nobody goes up to that line and makes it. So we had to rotate soldiers. Mm -hmm. It was like a lottery. You rotate. And when it's your turn to go be there in the front, it's your turn. And, and you can see the look at a soldier face when you say, hey, man, your turn is now not longer to be in the tower. Your turn to go be in the front search pedestrians. And when you say that term, you know, that's the death place. That's the first place where you're definitely guaranteed you're going to die. And I can see the look of my soldiers when I say it's your turn to rotate, to go to the front gate, to search pedestrians. And I can see the look, the look of death in that soldier face. And they go in there and they know. And imagine that you are there towards the end of the shift and you get rotated in between seven o'clock and eight o'clock to be there. You know that mm -hmm. you're not going to make it. And it, it, it truly, it hurts, right? Because you're asking people to go with themselves in death. And you looked at it and I just sat there and just did my job. And that was the point. And I got called in by uh, a U.S. Uh, Special Forces officer who asked the Iraqi Minister of Defense to transfer me to be the Iraqi Ministry of Defense, the Iraqi MOD Command Sergeant Major. And the reason why I was like one of the only NCOs in the Iraqi military that spoke fluent English, um, they had a goal of building the new infrastructure of the Iraqi military, and they wanted someone that be, can be in charge of the security of the building. So the building actually sat right outside of the green zone next to checkpoint one. It had its own checkpoint, but it was not considered a green zone or a U.S. base. It was considered a red zone because it's only protected by Iraqis. There, there's no Americans involved. And my job was to protect the building. And from the other side of the green zone, there was a metal gate. I don't know if you watch my documentary on Amazon. It shows I haven't it. I haven't seen the documentary yeah. yet. I wanted to uh actually if read you watch this it, first. If you watch it, you'll see actually General Betrayus with a picture actually standing in front of that gate and from that metal door that goes in. And that metal door went in to the MOD. And this is where 60 to 70 to 80, probably around American advisors that will cross every single day between the rank of a major to a full book colonel. These guys were in charge to build the infrastructure of the Iraqi Ministry of Defense to make sure we have medical units, we make sure we have logistics, and make sure we have operation rooms and everything. These were the builders of the Iraqi military. And you're trying to build a military while the military at war. I mean, imagine the job. Um, they brought the best. And... They deployed all kind of different people. I mean, you're talking about National Guard officers, infantry, Navy, uh, Marines. It was just a mix. It, 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 later on, it got called the MNFI, multinational. And 
And when I went in, it, it sounds like an easy mission, right? It's like a first protection mission. You're just trying to protect the building. You still get car bombs blowing up at the checkpoint every single day, uh, which is not nothing new. You're used to that. You do it every day for a year. Uh, you're a master of it. And at the time, I already been to actually first protection training um, outside of the country. And, uh, and, and I kind of understands how to do it, how to do things. And I just put my towers. I did my thing. And I had this first protection Marine Corps uh, NCO that was with me, helping me out, being my advisor. And the first day I saw the Iraqi employees, which was at the time was about a thousand and then eventually became like 3000 Iraqi employees that were coming in into this building. And they come in from nine to five. It's a regular job. And you have all these 80 American advisors that come in, try to train them and show them how to do their job, whatever. Is this the, the mod? This is the MOD. The Ministry yeah. of Defense. And I still remember, like, while I'm doing, walking through the checkpoints and everything, and I realized the Americans have brought me there because they want somebody they can depend on in the front. And I came in and I did my job to the extent, and I still remember looking at the faces of the Iraqi employees coming in. And I'm looking at the faces, mm -hmm. and I'm like, uh, <laughs> these, these doesn't look like a good guys. No. <laughs> and I just look at him like, well, you're trying to get me to protect the building from the outside, but the enemy's already inside of it. Right. And I kind of just sat in a corner and laughed at that point. And the Marine was just looking at me and laughing. He's, he's like, why are you laughing? I said, because you were trying, <laughs> you're trying to have me to protect you from people that are already making it through. Yeah, they're walking right by you right now, dude. I was like, I don't know how I can do my job doing that. And he's like, well, what do you mean? I said, these guys definitely work for the enemy. Like at least 30, 40% of them works with the enemy. If not- 50%. Like 100%. Like 100% yeah. of them. Look at their faces. Yeah. You can tell. And I'm really just looking at the faces. I'm like, well, that guy is religious. I can see a dark spot in his head. That guy. I was like, these yeah. people are definitely not here for Iraq interest or your interest. Right. These people can give a shit about what Iraq is going to be. Yeah. They're for a reason. It's two right. reasons. Either they're here for the salary, either they're here to collect on you, on me. So I started securing things inside. My job was every single day to, at four o'clock, send the Iraqis through the left side of the building to go out of that gate and get the hell out and wait for them to come back in the morning and make sure all these advisors leave through the metal gate and go home to their base in the green zone. Because where they go is they enter that metal gate and they go to a little FOP. It's called FOP Phoenix. And that's actually not a not a an actual military base. It's actually protected by like people from Fiji Island and just a guard. And if from there, they get in buses and they drive them to the U.S. Embassy where they all sleep. So they come from miles away. Mm -hmm. They drive them through the green zone. They go sleep at the embassy and that's where they belong. And I every day made sure that... I only had about three to four Americans that were allowed to stay overnight. And these are the guys where I had to protect the most. These are the guys that actually stayed in the Iraqi operational room. These are the guys that were in charge of, of, of being the liaison of informing the U.S. commander in Iraq at the time, General George Casey, about what the Iraqi operations are, whether it's casualties, whether how many troops are in contact. And these guys stayed overnight. So my job was anything happened to these guys, I have to evacuate them out of the building. But during the night, I barely have a few Iraqi officers on duty in the Iraqi operational room and just them. Uh, nothing to really worry about. 
And all of a sudden, the Iraqi government started getting divided based on the religious background. So you had a minister of defense. It was a decent guy, British citizen, um, lived in the UK his whole life, Iraqi guy, very great guy. And all of a sudden, that Iraqi minister left his office and things got divided based on religious background. And when we say that, basically, members of Al-Qaeda could actually rent for office and they can actually, based on the political party they belong into, could actually get an office seat. Which is terrifying. Which is scary, mm-hmm. right? You're looking at political, political battlefield that's going on in Iraq. And all of a sudden, we get a minister from Al-Ambar province, from Fallujah specifically. And the minister comes in. was a great guy. Nothing wrong with him. The guy was out of the country his whole life. He came into Fallujah and he hires his nephew. His nephew is a member of Al-Qaeda. Hires his nephew as in charge of his security detail. The nephew brings about 200 men from Al-Ambar province as a security detail with the new minister that just walked into the building. And at the time, I'm looking at three these 200 men, all military age, just the way they walk, truly. Like, that just goes to show you how you understand that society. How How is that country was so conspiracy theory drunk? And you look at them, they're all military age. They all had dark elbows. And they all had dark spots in their forehead, which means they pray a lot. They bend over to the ground so much. They, they're prayers. They're religious. So that's what the elbows and the dark spots on the head mean. Oh, yeah. The elbows are using the gun. Ah. It's a very desert, hard ground area. Right. You go to fight and you go down to use your elbows a lot while fighting. Your elbows start getting darker than normal Mm. because of the the platform of Ambar province. And the dark spot in the forehead, it indicates that you're religious. You pray a lot. You don't miss a prayer. Um, And they were all military age. And and, and there was a, a leader among one of them. Not the nephew. There was another leader. Just goes one step down. Who walked in there. And you just look at him. The way he walked. The way he talked. The way he looked. And what I would do. I would stand right on top of the MOD. And I would just watch them. And every time. Every morning. These American advisors that come in. Have about. Have nine millimeter gun in their legs. Walking through. Some of them are National Guard officers. Who. Look like social workers. Coming in, hi, good morning, walking through, and you, I just look, and the one thing that I really noticed is the faces of these guards that came from the Umbar promise with the minister, the faces of them walked, looking at an American colonel walking by, by just, just the way you're looking at that situation from further. Lamb to slaughter. And you're looking at me like, I can see in their eyes, they want to eat that American upside down. Mm-hmm. I can see in their eyes, they have never seen an American officer that high of a rank anywhere before. And if there was any place in Iraq that you could see someone that high of a rank, it would be that is the only place. Right. You can see that. So is, is what this major sab, sab? No, no, no. You... It, yep. Major Sabah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're yeah. talking about the right. So Sabah okay. was actually walking through the building. And every time he walks through the building, I ordered my guys, hey, keep an eye on him. Because all he does is you go out to the M- borders of the MOD, which is backs of the Tigers River. And it's full by 10 feet concrete barrier. The whole building was blocked. There was only two ways in to that place. My gate 
which I let people in and out. And I completely blocked the shit out of it, first protection-wise. I mean, a car bob can come in just, just by the amount of zigzag and amount of concrete barriers and checkpoints and everything. Nobody can make it into the MOD, to the actual building, truly. Well, right. That's the only gate. And the other, other hole in that building is the gate where these American officers leave every single day. And he just kept walking through the building. And I'm just looking at the room. I'm like, what is this? What is he going to do? That's all I want to know. What is he going to do? What is his next move going to be? So I kept an eye on him. And what they did is actually they brought a truck that lift T-walls. It has the front teeth in it. And that truck could lift anything. And if actually you put these teeth under the T-walls, you can flip one of them off. So when they brought that up, we immediately ran to the driver and we said, hey, what are you doing here? They said, we're moving furniture for the minister's office. And the minister's office was actually fully furnished by Saddam furniture. And, mm -hmm. and I looked at it and I was like, the minister's office is in the second level. What do they need this truck for? So keep an eye. And what they have did is they were trying to actually kidnap an American officer from the building. Which is the most ballsy thing I think I've ever read. When I, I mean, they, to that, I mean, they were so. Look, they have never gotten this close. So they reported information for a while. Hey, there's American officers of that high of a rank. So Al Qaeda, which is smart, thought this was a great opportunity to kidnap an American officer that high of a rank. Put him in a truck, drive him to the Umbar province. They carry the Ministry of Defense ID card. They will never be stopped. And they have a higher position in the government. But how could they get a, a car outside of that building without being checked? The only way a car can make it out through the green zone, which is impossible. And what they thought is they have armored vehicles. They can put an American officer in the, one of these armored vehicles, move one of the T-walls. And once you get out of that little T-wall, nobody cares. And what they have noticed is that I only have about four people that stay overnight. What they have noticed, there's another advisor that stayed late on the second level for a few days. People were switching deployment. People were not briefing their counterparts or the people that are replacing that, hey, you should not be here after 4 p.m. Mm -hmm. And decided to sit in the MOD with his Iraqi, uh, fellow Iraqi officer that's sitting there and just chill around until like 11 o'clock at night. And he showed up around 1130 at night without the minister. That's the only reason he would enter my building with his minister. And he showed up with about 150 men. And went in, and I immediately got the call. I ran in, and um, immediately I had to evacuate these four Americans at the Iraqi Operational Center. And two of my guys went to check the second floor just to double check. And they said, hey, there's a light in the second floor, and there's an American sitting here. And that's not the most terrifying call that I got. The next sentence was what terrified me. My soldier said, all the locks to the back of the building has been broken. We usually chain lock things. Mm -hmm. All the locks have been broken. So immediately ran out. It was a small, narrow hallway. Went out to the top. 
they were like really literally in the other side of the building debating to go up the stairs to where he was. So their plan was to get him, get him through the back side of the building where that T-wall truck is and move one of the T-walls and get that car out. And no one would ever see. They could just actually put the T-wall back in. No one would have seen anything. I'm going to interrupt you and I'm going to yeah. read, I'm going to read um, a paragraph from this um, chapter because the yeah. way you're talking about it, trust me, it's, it's interesting, but I got to tell you the way you wrote this and how it was written. It's next level. It's next level. Like I'm getting excited listening to you tell this story because I know what's coming next, but the way you wrote it was, it was so simple. Yeah. So the rest of my guys ran up to the second floor. My guys and I were trying to figure out where, <clears throat> as we were running up there, how we were going to approach this colonel without freaking him out. As we approached the colonel's door, one of the guys looked at me and said, Sergeant Major, do you realize we're going to war with one of the biggest terrorist organizations in the world? Yeah. It was at this moment we were all getting very nervous because we were fucking with a giant and we figured we were all dead. And a firefight start, if a firefight started, Sabbath's team there would be 50 of them and only a dozen of us. I entered the colonel's office and said, excuse me, sir, it's very late and we're getting ready to close up for the night. Yeah. I need to take you out of here right now. The thing that blows my mind about that is how young you were, but how calm and cool and collected you stayed, even though yeah. you knew there were people coming up the back way to come get yeah. this guy. And he had no damn clue at all. I mean, you had minute and minute to decide what do you want to do? And yeah. my job was to make sure these people do not get hold of anybody that I was in charge of. This was going to happen under my watch. And truly, you would think about it. You're in another hallway. If they open fire on you, you're done. This it's is over. not a, an open land. This is not outside of it. But this is inside of a very narrow, small hallway. And they got more firepower. And they are more determined. And you realize at that point, this is Al-Qaeda. This is no joke. Yeah. You're going at it with them and they're going to do whatever it takes yeah. to get their mission accomplished. And the reason why, because they were pressured in the Ambar province fighting against the Marine Corps. This would be a card they would play that would change everything. Change so so they things. send their best. So Sabah was actually their best operative to be sent in. There. And you'll find out later on who he was. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, when we got him out, we actually ran him through Havaway. We were so scared to expose ourselves. We told, we told him just to keep running towards that door and leave and never come back. And we ran him out. So they got up. It was about a second before we pulled out from the other side of the hallway. They got in. They looked in the room and they thought he was in the bathroom. So they went checking in the bathroom. They couldn't find him. And at the time, we had evacuated everybody out. So... I went back and looked at them while looking and I immediately take, took my cell phone and I called the American intelligence officer in charge on the building who I was in contact with, Colonel John Burke. And I said, uh, hey, there's members of Al-Qaeda in the building. I just got one of the guys out. I said, I'm not sure if I can have you guys back here in the morning. And he was asleep. So I kept calling and calling. Uh, during that time, and he answered about early, like before early morning. So when he answered and he found out what was going on, he immediately called General Casey's office, who was the commander of U.S. troops in Iraq, informed him what's going on. So this went immediately from a couple hours what would happen 
to within a few hours, this was already at the U.S. command. This is what's going on. Um, you are operating within the enemy line, and there will be high risk putting these guys back in there. And um, we we sat in there waiting, and the U.S. commander in Iraq at the time gave an order um, no travel to the MOD for 72 hours. All American advisors were not allowed to walk into the building. And we sat to decide. Basically, it was the first time in history that the U.S. government or U.S. military had to decide how they were going to build the new Iraqi infrastructure of the Iraqi military while members of al-Qaeda and Iranian operatives and members of other terrorist organizations within the same building. This was new. There is no training in the world can train you for that. This is something an SF officers would do, maybe. You could send SF guys to say, go to your job, be an advisor. But in case you're going to attack, you're an SF guy. Do what you got to do. This was National Guard guys and reservist officers and people who are really just, when I call them the social workers, they are the social workers of the military. And they're not there to fight. They're there to, to advise and train. And that was their job. And during that time, I got a call, and it was actually one of the intelligence officers, one of the, the U.S. intelligence officers who I was in, in, in touch with, Jason Failer at the time, and said, hey, go outside of the MOD. Don't let anybody see where you're going. Go towards the green zone. Uh, people want to talk to you, and they, they want to speak to you, and there's trucks are going to pull by you, SUVs. Get in the SUVs and go with them. And at the time, I'm like, SUVs, who the hell am I going to meet, right? And during that time, I thought that the Americans were trying to meet with me to decide on a plan and what we we're going to do. And when I went in there outside, I stayed outside, and there was a three SUVs pulled in. And this was not usual. I'm usual to seeing I'm, – I'm used to seeing, like, military uniform officers or people. These were civilians and body armors and a female that got out of the car, opened the back door, just like, get in. So I got in and I was driven into a compound inside of the green zone. That was actually uh, an intelligent compound that was behind the U.S. Embassy that later on got exposed as a CIA location or some intelligent compound that nobody can see you. No locals can see you or allowed in there. And they drove me into a room and I got inside a room with a table and they sat down there and they said, hey, do, do you want to work for us? And I'm like, who, who are you? Mm -hmm. I have no idea who you are. I mean, when you say, hey, I'm an intelligent officer from blah, blah, blah. Um, to me, as an Iraqi, this sounds nothing. I don't know what you are. Uh, if you're mm -hmm. not in uniform, I don't know what you are. And I can consider you a KVR if you're not in uniform. That's how I looked at you. So they introduced themselves, and there was two individuals there from the Defense Intelligence Agency, and there was one individual from the Marine Corps Intelligence, which is where the Ambar promise, where these guys come from. And what it looked like that these intelligence were shared, and these were intelligence officers in the Ambar province. And when they heard there was individuals in Ambar province in Baghdad doing such and so, came in to find leads because in Ambar province, the city was evacuated. There was no intelligence. There was no human leads in that area. So they came in to figure out what's really go what's going on in this building. So the, I sat down with them and I said, "This, I believe these are members of Al Qaeda. I believe there are multiple terrorist organizations that are fighting and th that are operating in the building. I believe that some of them are collecting 
I believe some of them are there to hurt Americans, and that's the bottom line. And at the time when they said, hey, do you want to work for us? And you got to think about it. It sounds pretty cool, right? To work for an mm-hmm. intelligent agency of a foreign intelligent to give you a heads up, to op- to communicate with the foreign intelligence and the Iraqi law, you get executed for that. The second thing, if Al-Qaeda or if any other terrorist organization finds out that you are communicating with a foreign intelligence, especially the U.S. intelligence, you don't have to worry about you. You have to worry about your family your parents, your your brother, your sisters, anybody that's related to you, what they will do to them. And you don't look at it as it's a very cool offer. No, it's not. So my answer to them was, well, beside being in charge at the most dangerous building in the world, I don't know how many side jobs I can do. I said, I really don't. Uh, what I want to do. I don't know what you want me to do. And I don't know, being the command sergeant major of the most dangerous building in the world, where I cannot take my gun and shoot an enemy because I don't even know who the enemy is. And my job was to go back to the building. And my demand was, you need to go arrest this guy, detain him and his men right now. Do what you got to do. I'll help you out. And they said, don't touch him. Don't go near him. Do nothing other than just find out who they are, where they come from. And at, the time, and I'm, at the time, I'm like, I'm a young, I'm, at the time, I'm a young 19 year old. And I'm like, I, I don't give a shit what you're going to do. Just go detain them. End it. Get them out of my building. I don't want anybody to get hurt. I don't want anybody to get killed or get kidnapped. And what it looked like at the time, I, these guys were from the Ambar province. I have no idea where they come from. And except for the Marine Corps intelligent operational officer that was there, it made sense that there's something connected to the Ambar province. So I went back to the building and I started actually collecting intelligence indirectly for them. And I went back digging more. And there was this chick that I knew in the personal department that had access to the ID cards, to the Iraqi MOD ID cards where they issue them. And this chick like kind of liked me, like she wanted to date me and, and I'd never paid attention to her. And I can't legally access all these files. You can't just walk into the personal department and open files who's who. So I started talking to her and I said, hey, I, I need to get a couple files. And she said, who? I said, uh, I need to find just a couple of people who they really are. I'm concerned about them and I'm just trying to find out. And uh, what it looked like, the U.S. intelligence had a database. They have bought from the old regime, basically from somebody who held that database. And that database had about, I don't know how many thousands of operatives and members of Al-Fidayin, Saddam suicide fire, former intelligence officers, people who are considered to be dangerous, who are bit part of the, bit, the Saddam regime. And they were trying to see if I can get real information of who Sabah is, who these men are. And I went back to the file. When she gave me access to it, I got Sabah file, which was m- most of my target, and a few other files. And what it provided in the files is first name, last name, tribal name, where they come from in the Ambar province, fingerprint, blood type. That's all you got. So I pulled Sabah file. She gave me a copy. I took it and I went back to the U.S. intelligence and gave him the information. Here's the file. And in my heart, really, I said, I said, like I said, these these Americans are really a bunch of idiots. They're not going to do anything. 
he's just going to walk right through the building, watch it happen. And that was like little me, me talking shit, taking it back to them. I made, I made them in a secure location outside and I gave it to them. And they said, go, okay, all right, go back, do the same thing. Just keep watching. So I went and found out exactly when he takes um, vacation is basically they take leave. They come in to work for 18, 21 days, and then they go home for a week. And I found out their shifts when exactly Sabah leaves. Started just collect intelligence. I mean, imagine you went from the command sergeant major of the MOD to being an intelligence asset. And I was not trained to be a spy. I'm a soldier. And I kept collecting, finding out more information, more information every single day. Sabah came back a member of Al-Fadayin, Saddam suicide fighters. He was a major. And um, Sabah actually was about to make it out of the building to go home. The next day, and I informed him that day, Sabah is making it out of the building to go home to the Ambar province. Are you guys going to detain him? They said, don't worry about him. Just let him go. And truly, I was pissed. I said, these guys are not going to do anything. Look at him. They just let this guy out of the door. And he went out to go home. And he's going to go back next week and probably going to kidnap or kill somebody. And that was the expectation. And I'm pissed. And they just said, don't worry about him. Just let him go. So they actually followed Saban as in Tarash, the Ambar province. They obviously had a drone technologies at the time. I was not aware of. They have done something. And when Saban mm-hmm. actually arrived, which you will watch it in the documentary, when Saban Arand arrived to his villa where he lived in a really nice place in Garma Fallujah, they dropped the team right on top. And they went in and they found a tunnel from his bedroom to the back of a farm where he lived, where they lived. And behind the farm, they found two containers with a running AC um, uh, tubes running. Two metal containers were buried. These were a barracks of foreign Al-Qaeda fighters from outside of the country, people from Yemen, Saudi Arabia, other countries, uh, and fighters who actually would be distinguished by, by the public if they go out during the day. And there was about like 25 fighters in there and behind the containers, there was a football field full of cache of explosive that they use for IDs. Jesus. And he was detained and gone. I was not aware of anything actually within four days. Everything was just normal, right? I didn't see these guys again. So Sabah so didn't come back and I just made the phone call. I said, hey, uh, what happened to Sabah? And they said, you don't need to worry about Sabah. He's gone. So what do you mean he's right. gone? Did you guys kill him? Did you guys detain him? They said, he, he's gone. Well, he can't have a lawyer present. He's, he's gone. We're not worried about him. Moving next. Right. And I just looked left and right. And I'm like, shit. Like, this guy went out of the gate. No one followed him and he disappeared. I mean, what kind of capabilities these people have? And that's the time I actually started showing respect for these individuals. Yeah. Because I was like, damn, the guy left. No one followed him. I didn't see anybody follow that guy. I didn't see any convoys attack him or anything. He just left like nothing. And Next thing I hear, he's gone. He's not coming back. And beautiful thing. Brought me back and assigned me to actually build a database of the Iraqi MOD. At the time, Iraq did not have a digital database, did not really know who was who, and built a whole entire database of um of the Iraqi MOD. There was about over 16 terrorist organizations that were fighting in there. 
uh, they were like actually operating, collecting intelligence. We have members of the Iranian intelligence within the building who are collecting intelligence on our U.S. advisors, collecting inter- intelligence on operational missions, anything. There were members of al-Qaeda. There were members of Islamic State at the time who later on became ISIS. They were called the Islamic State at the time led by Zarqawi. They were members of Naqshbandis, members of the Batakor. These probably terrorist organizations you never even heard of. And they were all in there. And my job was to go in and find the iceberg, like to find the iceberg under the ocean and find out who these people are, which group they belong to. And I started painting this picture into who these people are, who they belong to, and started finding these individuals one after another. And for three years, is I, wor- I worked as an intelligent asset, collecting intelligence. And every year, Later on, six months, a new collection, a U.S. intelligence collection team will come in and you go there to work. You provide information. And my job officially became a command sergeant major of the Iraqi MOD during the day, a U.S. spy during the night. That was it. And can sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. No, go ahead. In, in, a, in, a, in a spy during the night. And um when the minister of defense at the time and different ministers that came through, when someone come to visit him, like a congress member or someone from the embassy or uh, a foreign defense minister, imagine that the Secret Service calls you and tells you, hey, today we do have an important person coming in. They won't tell you who it is until about 20 minutes before that person arrived. They will say, hey, this is who the person is. This is Donald Ramosfeld's going to be here. Or this is Congress member, blah, 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 it's going to be here. So they assigned this uh, agent that actually spoke Arabic. And he would call me and say, hey, we're going to send canines. We're going to send people that are going to be there ahead of time. We need you to do your job and shut down all these access to the people. So I considered the employees is the wild zoo. That's what I called them, the wild zoo. What I will do is I will only secure one hallway where these people arrive, get out, get up on top. I secure this one hallway and I shut down these doors, lock them, and I put soldiers in each side. Because outside, behind these doors, that's where all people I can't even distinguish. I have a database of who these terrorists are, who they work for. And... But I don't know how many are out there. Mm-hmm. I mean, they could have a weapon. They could have anything. Imagine they actually threatened the Minister of Defense from our MOD secure email line. It means the Iraqi Minister of Defense got threatened from his own building <laughs> in an email saying, you're going to be dead. It and blew- that's how afraid you were. I mean, that yeah. just goes to show you the environment you were living in. And canines coming in and lock the door. So if I don't give them the okay, that person can't come in. Right. So every day that was my day. And uh, one day we actually had, I think, a Congress member come to visit, a representative of somehow of one of these states come in. And he asked to go to a certain area. And we said, no, we can't. We can't let you go through. And we get them in and out fast enough and uh we have collected on multiple individuals and uh 
we had one individual that we collected on who was actually originally from the Umbar province, looked in Baghdad about 20 minutes outside of where we worked. And this individual was being collected on because he was known to have a, a, a resentment towards co coalition forces. And the people, the sources who are watching him for me have informed me that he was actually um, taking so many cigarettes break. And at the time I have made the Iraqi MOD where all Iraqis have to smoke outside on a balcony because if you allow Iraqis to smoke, they'll turn that building into a hookah bar. They'll smoke everywhere. <laughs> so we told them because of the American advisors in the building who actually would not appreciate you smoking on their face, you need to go to the balcony and smoke. And we had right. a camera right in there. So we watched everybody. So my sources came in. It was just a normal hint said, hey, man, we are losing vision of this guy every day for about 45 minutes. 15 minutes, he disappeared out of, out of every hour. And he took his cigarettes. We claimed to go smoking. We don't we don't see him anymore. So I went in just to kind of normal routine, just to check because he worked at the Iraqi Operation Center. He was not. Um, he was a, near where a lot of American officers would be. So we went in to make sure that there's nothing, anything dangerous. So it was a normal routine for me. Uh, the guy leaves at five o'clock. And the intelligence collection team said, hey, man, uh, we need you to go and find out where he goes. So I, I go in and I find out. We search the bathroom. He would go anywhere. We, we kind of just try to stay on top of him. And we found out he actually is, he, he was gone to the locker room. And I said, well, he could be smoking in the locker room. He could be just making a phone call. He could be doing something. So for me, I was not taking that seriously, that hint. On and just kind of followed with it. So the, the intelligence collection team said, you know what, man, to play it safe, because we had generals that come through this hallway in this operation center. We have Joel Petraeus, Casey, Gorelli, uh, Thorman, the fourth division uh, commander. We, we got important people coming into this building and this hallway in specific where this guy is. We need you to go double check. So I said, what do you need me to do? They said, we need you to go to break that locker that he owns. Why is he in there in the locker room? And in Iraq, they made the same lock by one company. So you can actually go buy another lock. And it's a common thing that the keys jam. So I broke his lock and I put a lock exactly that looked like his. And I broke his lock. I took a lock cutter with me and I was not supposed to be seen there. So I had like five, not even five minutes. And it's a normal routine because that's when he comes in in civilian clothes. He changes to uniform, takes that uniform and at the end of the day hangs it up and go home. And that's what he does. So I went in, I broke the locker. And when I broke the locker, I opened it and it was his uniform. I searched every pocket and I put my, my hand right behind the, the, the uniform. And I felt that bag was a small like devil bag. And I took it out. And I was like debating whether like, do I leave this bag or they're probably going to say, did you check the bag? Mm -hmm. I'm going to take it out. So I take it out put it in the ground, I open it. And the first thing hit me, it was the cigarette that actually the tobacco, the, the cigarettes, all oh, a lot of smashed cigarettes. And when I opened it up, there was actually a suicide built with C4 all the way around with a detonator actually assigned to it. And when I saw that, I backed up and I was like, I dropped this bag in the ground heavily and I'm looking at it. So I had to hit the emergency button evacuate the Americans who were behind the wall. 
take this bag full of cigarettes, smash cigarettes. And what it looked like that he had brought in C4 in a small cigarette containers. And when he went through pedestrian checkpoint, they looked at it. It's cigarettes. Mm-hmm. But unless you open these cigarettes and you pull them out, and you realize they're actually half-sized cigarettes. They're not a full cigarettes. Just like the top. Just like the top. And they had people that manufactured for them and covered it with a plastic. So you look at it, it's brand new cigarettes box, but it's not. And um, it's a shocking moment. You are thinking like, shit, all the security that I have done, all this, all this check. And this guy managed to build a suicide building inside of the building. It just goes, you show you the craft they have and how many of them were carrying those. He didn't mm-hmm. carry that alone. Multiple people came in and did carry that. So he had help. He had people. And we were not aware of that side of the picture. So we hit the emergency button and evacuate everybody. Everybody who was on duty that night saw who I was. Saw that I had involvement with the U.S. government or U.S. intelligence. Uh, a lot of people were not processing why your English is so good. They didn't realize mm-hmm. I was fighting with American troops so long that my English was so good. A lot of people had to believe in their heart that I was not born in Iraq. I'm, I'm a spy of some sort, mm. that I'm, I'm planted in there. And I get out, and the U.S. intelligence says, you know, I think they're aware of who you are. Do not make any phone calls to anybody, your family, anybody. And if you want to leave, just leave. You've done enough. And I right. just like, I'm a soldier. I'm going to stay where I am. I'm not going to go anywhere. And at that time, we were being watched by people. We don't even know who they are. Somehow, somebody was watching us. At that point, for a couple months, they knew that somehow there is an intelligent asset inside of the building. Because usually, when good Iraqi officers leave the building, they get assassinated. Right. They don't get back. The bad guys, who you know, especially when they live in bad areas and they go back and forth, you know they have something. Mm-hmm. why they're not dead yet so you started really collecting and trying to understand the picture and one of my teammates said hey man i gotta i gotta go and and um i gotta go and i have to um um i got i gotta go see my my kids i have not seen my kids in months and i said all right just use a different exit please and be careful make sure you're not followed and uh go home Go see your kids. And he left, and it was exactly 14 minutes. He was assassinated. He shot in the face with two bullets. Yeah. And, yeah, when that when that happened, it, it, it was just a hurtful moment that you felt that you cost someone their life, and there was nothing you can do. You don't know who killed them. You don't know which group. But you know that they are into you. And this was a message. To let you know that you can hide in this building for years, but you're eventually going to come out. Mm-hmm. And for me, I lived years inside of that building. I never left out of the wire, only in convoys. It's the only time I left that wire. So they couldn't get me out. I don't go anywhere. They tried sending women trying to hook up with me to get me out of the wire for a date. And I would never get out because I knew these women work for them. And you would ask Speaking me of- why, right? Yeah, uh, you're not asking me like why wouldn't you, right? What concerned me at the time is that the U.S. intelligence had provided a lot of 
possibilities of what could happen to me at the time. I was aware of what could come towards me. But when there is a woman that entered that checkpoint for three years, saw you every single day, but didn't hit on you, but all of a sudden she's out there hitting on you. Mm-hmm. And I, and I, I looked to literally, I still remember one of them talking to me. I said, you passed by me for two years. You never looked in my face. But you, today you're interested and talking to me, and there's a lot better looking guys in this building. So when you look at it, I was every every hint or every woman that would try to talk to you, what would they say? Do you want to come meet me in my apartment? Where do you live? I live mm-hmm. extra amount of miles outside of the MOD. Cool. I'm, I can't imagine how many suppressors will be on my face when I come to see you. So I honestly kind of was aware that they were out there. Right. They made it clear, though. They made it clear, clear. though. They did. And they trying to get me out of the building, but I don't leave. But it's also I'm one of the hardest targets for them to kill. Usually they can go kill your family. They don't know who I am. They don't know who my family is. I don't get out of the building. and I'm a soldier, which means I'm armed. I have people all around me protecting me. So it's important for you to watch the documentary on Amazon. You'll understand how those dynamic works. Mm -hmm. And that's why the U.S. intelligence had a huge interest is that I was harder to get. And they never killed someone that was an asset who was armed. They usually follow you going home and they kill you. That's the deal. But how do they go after a command sergeant major that's surrounded by 2,500 soldiers? They they just can't. So they try to figure out ways it didn't work. Then they started getting aggressive and they went after my teammates. And at that point, I just realized that the longer I stay, the longer I go toe-to-toe with these individuals – I mean, you're talking about terrorist organizations that are putting the differences behind and they focusing how they can kill a 20-year-old punk that is the guy they've been looking for all these years. That's the guy that's been causing them damage. We've been that's threatening the them. Yeah. And you are a big threat for them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the conspiracy theories went all over. They believe that to this day, actually, if you see on my social media, they believe that I was not born in Iraq. This was someone implanted in there and he needs to go. And... I decided that I was going to leave the building and um, that I can't get any more people killed. Um, And um, I told my soldiers that I was going to see them in five minutes and I'll be back. And it was just a normal day leaving the building. And um, I left. And uh, yeah, I left and it, it was actually the, the, the hardest moment of my life to walk away and uh from somewhere um to walk away from everything you know your your life your career uh what you wanted what you built what you earned to be and i had to walk away and never left behind and um and yeah just walked out and uh never looked behind and never saw the people or the faces that I worked with every single day. And uh, within a few months, I ended up leaving the country. And um, We'll back up a second here yeah. because you didn't just walk out. You walked out yeah. in some epic fashion and not to, yeah. I won't, I won't, I won't get yeah. into exactly what happened because I want people to read this book. And I want them to understand because the, because the way the you wrote it. Feel free to the guy that I, uh, you're probably going to mention. 
Yeah. It, uh, he's still a free person, and he's actually a big threat in Iraq right now, and is still a big threat to me. What I love and so much is the way you held him to the fire and yeah. turned the tables on him and his yeah. family so he could feel for once what it felt like to be yeah. terrorized. Yeah. And that was epic. I've told that story now yeah. to more people than I've told a lot of stories. Just reading that and how ballsy yeah. it was for you and your team to do what he, you did. He grew up, actually, me and him grew up just blocks from one another. Wow. I know who he was. He didn't know who I was. And, um, you know, when I did my interview with NPR years ago, um, they asked me this question, which really hurts me, right, in my heart. They're like, when you put the gun on their kids and their families, right, does that, doesn't that make you like them? No. Um, in a way, it doesn't. Because you're doing it for the good reason, but still, you're, you're still terrorizing somebody that has nothing to do with it, right? But somehow you have to do your last touchdown. And for me, is I wanted to see, because I lost my teammate and my closest friends to me, I wanted to see that weakness in his eyes. Somehow I was hungry for it. To know that he could be on the yeah. other side of this, to make him feel that. It's truly. And then, you know, they, they actually hit me when I went there. Um, when I went there, they hit me. And, um, and as soon as I mentioned his wife's name, because at the time I had a team, I knew what he lived. I have called people that I grew up with. And I said, you guys know where his family and his wife, his kids lived. And, and I uh, sent somebody to be in his house while I meet with him. Uh, he just didn't know that I was ahead of him. And they thought they really got me because at the time they form uh in iraqi they form an iraqi order from the iraqi government to pull me out of the mod for an investigation and once mm -hmm. they get me out that's the one way to get me out of the building i was protected by the americans there's no way for them to get me out for any reason so they figured this would be a great way before i leave the building and and uh i was ahead of him because he was a, a big head i needed to make sure that he would to tell me who was above him and I get to know a little bit more before I leave. So it was an opportunity for me when I sent a team to his house and they put the gun on his wife and his kids while actually I went to meet with him. And I said, I'm ready here to be investigated, but do know before you take me out of here, your wife, which is her name. I said, you may want to call her right now. He called actually his wife. He thought I was brilliant bullshitting him until he made the call and somebody answered the phone. and. They were in his living room and he had daughters. He had a, a young boy and in a way yet, look, his kids has nothing to do with it. Um, God forbid the team that I sent could have shot somebody could have killed a kid could have killed. I mean, uh, the possibility is, is high. Uh, thankfully we didn't hurt anybody in his family. There was somebody that I want to hurt is him, not his kids. Definitely. They, they didn't do anything. Um, he did. All of it. He did. And I just, when I said his wife's name and he answered, someone answered the phone, he, he sat on his, in his chair and he went silent. I think he was about to have a heart attack. Um, and at the time I put a paper and a pen in front of him and I said, write him down. And 
you get the chance to walk out of here. And I'm walking out of here too. And I said, you're not going to see me again. But I'll give you the chance to walk out of that door and go, and I'll go. And write, write your boss name down. And he wrote it. He wrote his boss name down. And I said, you get to go get your family, do whatever you got to do, because they'll probably kill you for doing that. Mm-hmm. And I let him out. Still a bad guy to this day. He's big in Iraq right now because these terrorists are now run the government. And he walked out and I walked out the other way and I packed my stuff and I left. And uh, this was the hardest moment in my life um, because I left to the unknown and I arrived in this country and uh, arrived in this country and started my life over um, all over again. And almost like everything that went on in my life for the five years of war, like didn't happen. And uh, it's a big shock to go from who you were, what we, what you used to be, and you leave it all behind and leave. How are you, how are you doing now? How are you doing with being in the United States? You've been in the United States since 2008. I've been there since July 2008. I arrived here, started my whole new life. Nobody knew who I was, what I used to do, and nothing was special about me until my book got released in 2015. Well, you know, I, I can tell you, Hamity, there's always been something special about you just because a book release doesn't, doesn't make it. Yeah. So the external validation is fantastic. Don't get me wrong, but the... The efforts, the the sacrifice, the time, the bravery, and the way that you put yourself on the line for others that weren't even your countrymen. They were people that came into your country to help. You you sacrificed a lot, um, including your family, your country, and and everything that you left behind. But what what is beautiful to me is to see what you've been doing with it and to see how you've learned and to see how you're growing and to see what you're trying to change. And you're trying to educate individuals so that they can understand what the hell happened and why it happened and who is in power. And at the defenders of freedom event, you showed some really beautiful photos of the transformation of Iraq and what it was to what it is now. Yeah. Is that hard to see, though, knowing that those people who were such just evil human beings are still in power, though? Oh, Does that indeed? I mean, it hurts. You fought. You fought your way to make sure these people don't control anybody, don't hurt anyone, and it hurts to see all that hard work we put, all these lives we gave in Iraq to stop these evil bastards from being in charge. And I think. This is not our mistake. The soldiers and the people that fought out there, anybody. No. We did our job to the point to stop these evil people from doing what they're doing. This was the politicians' weakness that bend right. over to these people. The only people that would bend over to a bad guy is the politicians. And they bend over to them, let them control Iraq, and let them take over, and let them do what they have to do and terrorize people because they felt it was no longer our fight. And for me, this was personal. For me, it was if you're a bad guy, you need to go. You don't need to be here. You don't need to be controlling anybody. So, thank you. Worry. Yeah. 
sorry, do you worry about your safety with them still being in power, even oh, though you're yeah, in America? You definitely. Yeah. You definitely, you're aware of all time. You're, you're careful of who they are. You never know. These guys are capable. These guys are very powerful, but I'm protected. I live a very low profile life. Uh, my, my real information is not what's in the book. Like my name is not the real name in there. Uh, my identity is still protected, but however, you know, I feel and the end of the day, the damage I caused, it was done. I caused them their damage and they cost me their damage. And I took my pain and walked away with it. And, and no matter what happened next, is it's not going to matter. Um, the people I fought during my time, some of them are still there. Um, mm -hmm. Some of them have been detained. Some of them are still in power. Some of them, to me, it's just um, I'm glad I was able to make the right decisions to do what I need to do. And Iraq paid off in a way. There is a whole new generation right now that are standing up to them and fighting them. And if they were if they fought one Hamidi back 15, 14, 13 years ago, today they're fighting millions of Hamidi, trust me. And that's the whole point, that you were not fighting for yourself. You were not fighting for your interest. You were fighting for the next generation. And how much more than that that I want to see is that's it. I think my job was done and the next generation, it's now their fight. And you've done a beautiful thing. You've sacrificed a lot of your life for that country and you don't even live there any longer. I'm, I'm, I've, I told you from the beginning, um, you blow me away, your, your commitment your willingness, the trauma you've endured by trying to stay within your country to give them those freedoms that you know every human should have and should believe in. Yeah. Um, and to sit with you after reading it and to pull it apart and hear it out of your own words. If you're not watching this episode and you're just listening, please go watch the YouTube episode because Hamity, you may not realize some of your expressions or some of the things, but it's all over your face when you're talking about these situations. And yeah. it is something that I can tell that you, there's parts of it you will struggle with for the rest of yeah. your life. And True. that's, and that's more than yeah. acceptable. Yeah. It's a, unfortunately it's a, it's, a, it's chapters that you can never turn around. You can never close. And uh, someday you'll find peace with yourself mm -hmm. or um, to find peace after everything you saw. I mean, it's easy for people to say, hey, you move on, right? But yeah, is you can never move on from what you saw. You can never forget the faces that you saw every single day that are not longer with you. You can never forget how hard of a challenge it was and what the cause was. And you fought for the cause, even if you didn't achieve what you did. You achieved something. You got somewhere. There's a whole new generation fighting in Iraq. But you look at it, you like, I could have think, done things different. Yeah, but at the same day, is is the real war starts when you come home, and uh, that war is brutal, and the war you start with yourself is even more brutal. And uh, you know, you just think of the consequences and the mistakes and the things you've done and. You look at it and uh, you let you let God judge you by it. And uh, I feel that I have done my job to the extent where everything I got in my power, I did it. And um, anything else after that, 
is up to God to judge you on it. And uh, my whole point and focus was to kill no innocent, to point no guns on women and children. And I tried my best to do my job and uh, and uh, just live with it right now. You're living with it. You're living proof that you can live through it. You're living proof that if you try and you do things with intent and only try to spread love and light and freedom that you can live through it. Um, you are proof of that. And I am forever grateful to know you, to get to have you on the show, to get to listen to your story, but more importantly, to spread your message, um, to spread the truth of what happened in Iraq, to to help you move on in your life and, and to let you know that your sacrifice does not and will not ever go unheard and unnoticed. I, this book I hold real deep. I do hold, um, it is special to me. That being said, I want everyone to not just watch your documentary on Amazon, but I, I do want everyone to get a hold of this book because the way you wrote it, the stories you have in it, it's, it's hard to put into words how fantastic it is. Um, and some of it is just so, it is hard to read. It is incredibly hard to read, but it's only hard to read because somebody else had lived through it. Um, and there's real, there's real emotion behind it. There's real, there's real pain in these words and there's real hope in these words, which is also something that needs to be a huge takeaway from you is the hope and the the human potential to give hope, to share hope, and to let others know that there is always a light at the end of everything. You just sometimes have to be willing to go through hell to get to it. It's a beautiful thing. And I think you're a beautiful soul. And I want everyone to go get this book, The Terrorist Whisper. Can you tell me and tell everyone where they can get yes. a copy of this? So actually, if you go to my Instagram account, I have provided a link tree. I have uh, one link. Canada, one link to the United States. So if you live in Canada, there's a link there for you. You can order the book and you can just go to the terroristwhisper.com and you can order an autograph book. Actually, it will be autographed in your name with a movie poster that will arrive there. And the documentary is on Amazon, on Amazon Prime. Again, the same name, The Terrorist Whisper. And we'll make sure to put everything in the bio and we will make sure to link everything. And I do hope that everyone will go out, grab a copy of this, read it, share it and make everyone learn. So we stop making these mistakes because at some point we have to start learning from our past and we have to start learning from the people that have been through it on the ground so that we can stop hurting others that don't need to be hurt. This is just... This has been an incredible episode and it has been um, an honor to sit and have you on the show, Hamity. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. It's my honor. Yeah, you are welcome. Anytime you would like to come on, my friend. Um, everyone else, go give him a follow, give him some support, give him some love, grab that book and uh, Hamity, stick with me. Everyone else, whew, that's uh, that one's going to take a minute. We will see y'all next week. <laughs>